We've come this week now to James, James chapter 1. I remind you that this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word. We ask Jesus that you would come and preach to us in that word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, if James is about anything, it's about endurance and about Christian living. James is about Christian living and about enduring in the mid- while we live in the midst of an unbelieving world. On a commuter flight from Portland, Maine to Boston, Henry Dempsey, who is a pilot, heard an unusual noise uh, near the rear of his small aircraft. And he turned the controls over to his co-pilot and went back to check it out. As he reached the tail section, the plane hit an air pocket and Dempsey was tossed against the rear door. He quickly discovered the the source of the mysterious noise. The rear door had not been properly latched prior to takeoff and it flew open. Dempsey was uh, immediately sucked out of the jet. The co-pilot, sensing, uh, seeing the red light that indicated an open door, radioed the nearest airport, requesting permission to make an emergency landing. He reported that the pilot had fallen out of the plane, and he requested a helicopter search of that area of the ocean for his body. After the plane landed, they found Henry Dempsey. Holding on to the outdoor ladder of the aircraft, somehow he had caught the ladder, held on for 10 minutes as the plane flew 200 miles an hour at an altitude of 4,000 feet. Then at landing, he had kept his head from hitting the runway, which is a mere 12 inches away. It took airport personnel several minutes to pry Dempsey's hands from the ladder. Well, that's tenaciousness. That's stickability. That's endurance. That's what James is about. It means that I use that illustration simply to illustrate the fact that James is writing to a dispersed group of believing people. And he's saying, listen, what you need in the world in which we live is that stickability, that endurance that God calls us to. And what he's going to do is he's going to open up to us ways in which we may practically stick to God and endure in the Christian life. James knows something about that because James was was, uh, a a leader in the church. In fact, uh, uh, a leader of great significance in the early church in Jerusalem. He led that church for a period of time uh, before, prior to his death in 62 AD, which we understand was part of uh, Nero's persecution He was cast from the parapet of the temple and then beaten with clubs on the ground once he hit it. Uh, He was one of the earliest uh, martyrs for the Christian faith, certainly one of the earliest of the great Christian church leaders, not numbered amongst the apostles, uh, but one who led 
and one who was present and actually led the first assembly of God's church in Acts chapter 15 in Jerusalem. James knows what it is to give one's life for God and what it is to live for God in a changing world. So James is going to read sometimes to us as we hear it like wisdom literature. If you read Proverbs, there are these staccato sort of statements that will take up different subjects and impart different things to us uh, at various points. There there doesn't seem to be uh, large sections of cohesive theological instruction. Uh, Very much, James has an intention an intention of sharing with us a various number of things that have central general themes, but will be very practical, quick, rapid statements uh, for Christians wondering how to live in a wicked world. We'll talk about those themes in a moment, but James, James is writing this epistle for early Christians. He identifies himself right from the beginning, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who is James? There are three different individuals who are James identified in Scripture. James, the son of Zebedee. Uh, You remember James and John. John. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. John and James are apostles. Uh, but James did not uh, assume uh, uh, the, the um, leadership in the church that James, uh, the brother of Jesus, does. There's also James, the son of Alphaeus, James, the son of Mary and Joseph, the brother of Jesus. That's the James that is writing this uh, account, this epistle. Uh, James, <clears throat> James... Uh, was presiding, or James presided over the council of the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, as we've said. Uh, And uh, James is writing this book uh, with the intention that he would impart certain things to early New Testament believers. But he identifies himself first and foremost in two ways. A bondservant of God. He's a slave of God. He's identifying himself humbly before God as a slave of God, one who understands that his life belongs to God, having been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He identifies himself, secondly, as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who in the world would identify themselves as a bond slave of their brother? James is a half-brother of Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus the Savior. Jesus was born to Mary, so was James. But Jesus' father is God. He was not fathered by uh, Joseph. He was created immaculately in the womb, or his his physical body was uh, created physically in the body of the womb uh, of of Mary. And uh, he was the eternally existing Son of God, second person of the Trinity. And he became incarnate. And James grew up with Jesus and uh, other members of the same family, sisters, brothers, having the same mother. And John tells us that James, along with his brothers and sisters, 
did not necessarily initially believe that Jesus was the Savior, that Jesus was the Christ. But at some point, we are not told when or how, James comes to faith in Jesus Christ. James believes this individual with whom I grew up, who grew in the wisdom and stature before God, this one whom I see hanging upon the cross is, in fact, the Savior. James is recorded in uh, Acts, in the first chapter, as being amongst the crowd who gathers with the apostles in the upper room, fearful for their lives, but a disciple of Jesus Christ, growing, attaining to the wisdom of God, listening to the teaching of the apostles. Eventually, James assumes or is given the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, James counts himself a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is one who has recognized that his life is hid with Christ, that Christ is his Lord and Savior. It is a small thing for him to proclaim at the very beginning that he is a bond servant of God and of Jesus Christ. So he is clarifying right from the beginning that Jesus Christ is God. Now he You might say, well, I have some doubts about whether or not Jesus Christ is God. I believe that he's a great moral teacher. I believe that he has done extraordinary things. He's a miracle worker, one gifted with extraordinary statements of God. I would say to you this morning, if his his half-brother, who grew up with him in the same house, ate at the same table, most likely slept in the same bed for a period of time as a youth, as a young Jewish boy, who walked with him, talked with him, cared for the animals in the same way, did the same chores, and grew up in the same household with him, comes to the conclusion at a later point in his life that Jesus, that same Jesus, is the Son of God, God of God, the essence of God, on on the same par, co-equal with the Father. If James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, comes to that conclusion, shouldn't we? So he is clarifying something from the very beginning, though, for us, too. That we who are believers... We who are numbered amongst the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. James brings in Old Testament language. Uh, The 12 tribes. Where do we see that affirmed in the New Testament? Well, Jesus appoints 12 apostles, does he not? Judas dies. He is replaced with Matthias. And then then, uh, Paul comes along as as one of the last apostles, untimely, appointed to that task nonetheless, a chief of sinners, but one called by Jesus Christ, taught by Christ. But then at the very end in Revelation, as we've been reading, as as our elder has been reading on Sunday mornings, uh, again and again, there, the 12 tribes with, with the, the completion of the city of God and its 12 gates and, 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 and the, the 12 uh, uh, precious jewels and stones depicting the fullness of all those 
of the true Israel of God who will be assembled in the last day in the city of the Lord. Uh, And it's referring to every believer, every believer of every kind, from every nation, of every color, and every creed. And so so James is saying, listen, I'm writing to Christians, and I'm referring to them with Old Testament language, showing, clarifying that the Israel of God is of all those who are people, the people of God. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you're in the covenant of grace, if God's covenant blessings and promises are yours in Christ Jesus, you are part of, you have entered into, you are proclaimed by God to be the Israel of God. When you hear Israel mentioned in Scripture, and and you need to go to Romans chapter 9 when you hear Paul, a Jew of Jews, say, not all are of Israel who are of Abraham's seed. And so it is not about ethnicity, but it is about faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. We are united under that same encompassing covenant uh, to which was given the 12 tribes, or to which it was given uh, to the 12 tribes. And so he's saying, look, and he was an apostle predominantly to Jews. I mean, so he was not an apostle, but he was he was a minister predominantly to the Jewish church in Jerusalem, but there were Gentiles there as well. And he's writing to the 12 tribes who are scattered abroad, to every believer everywhere who might be amongst the dispersion, scattered throughout the world in various places. And he's writing and clarifying to them that there is something that is real and true about every believer, and that is that Every believer is united to Jesus Christ. Every believer is a slave, a bondservant to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, James is going to impart to us a number of things that will in, inform us about the Christian life and how to live the Christian life, calling and, and at times even scolding us to live in such a way that is pleasing to God, to do certain things and to pray in certain ways that clarify for us how we must live in this world. And he wants to make sure that we right from the beginning understand that any call to the Christian life, any any command of God, and there are there are 50 imperatives in these five brief chapters. He wants to clarify for us that all of them will be based upon this and motivated by this one great principle. You and I, we have been bought with a price. We belong to the Lord. We are bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> James has a number of purposes in writing. One of them is significantly that we would engage in prayer, that we would be faithful in prayer, that we would pray faithfully. He begins the epistle with prayer. And he ends the epistle with prayer. He says in verse 5 of chapter 1, right from the beginning, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. And then in chapter 5 at the very end, my brethren, if any one of uh, pardon me, in verse 18, then he prayed again, speaking of Elijah, and the sky poured forth rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Is anyone of you sick? Call for the elders and... Have them pray over you. 
So a significant theme in James is about prayer. There are many other prayer themes too. Mercy, controlling the tongue. He says many different statements about uh, that stick with us. God is not the author of sin. The demons believe and they shudder. Faith without works is dead. The tongue is an uncontrollable fire. There are so many different things that he will speak of. <clears throat> there are many other things that Jesus, that James will share with us and impart to us through this passage, through this book. But the first thing comes to us in these first four verses of James. There are three particular truths that come to us that James makes uh, immediately. There's a goal of maturity. It's found in verse 4. There's a pathway to maturity found in verses 3 and 4. And there's a terrain through which that pathway must go. So we come first this morning in these first few verses to the terrain of maturity for the believer. The terrain is simply found in verse 2. There, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. The Christian life involves walking through terrain that is often very difficult. And the terrain simply stated is trials, temptations. Many of us face trials, do we not? Many of us are facing trials right now. And many of us think that those trials are far more significant than, to be honest, eternally, that they really are. We all respond to those trials in very various ways. We respond often with either bitterness or questions and complaints. Why me? Or we, we respond with frustration or assuming of God certain things that are capricious, uh, certain things about God that are unrighteous or unjust. But there is an approach to trials that you and I must have. The Greek word that's used in this verse is poikilos, which means many colored or variegated, diversified, complex, intricate. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Trials of all different kinds. The breakdown of relationships, the loss of a husband or a wife, death, we experience death in our loved ones, or perhaps we've experienced difficulty through uh, trials uh, in, in simply becoming ill, becoming very, very ill, or dealing with an ongoing disease or immunodeficiency. Or perhaps we are struggling with certain sins that have beset us for some time and we desire to be freed from them. James places emphasis on that word. There are many different kinds of trials that we will endure. Maybe you thought that you've already been through a lot of different trials throughout the course of your life, and, and, and now you can sail or coast. You've reached uh, uh, near the end anyway. You're financially reasonably stable. You've raised the children. And now you want to simply enjoy those children. You want to enjoy life and perhaps even grandchildren. Uh, yet God still has not finished teaching and bringing you to a position of maturity in the Christian life. There are various trials that, as I get, glance around the congregation this morning, 
Some of you are raising children. You don't know quite how to do it. (laughs) Uh, There's a workload, a heavy workload that you've been stuck with. Uh, You need to work, or perhaps you're looking for work. You've changed work. You've come to a new position. You're trying to figure out your place. You're struggling with various sins, whether pride or yielded to, to, to temptation. Marital difficulties, impatience, anxieties, physical ailments, concerns, some new thing. I myself was in the hospital this last week. I was there briefly. I'm thankful for the healing that I've received for the most part, but now I have something now that I have to watch for the rest of my life. They said, uh, literally, they came over to the table and said, once you've had it, you're going to have it again. Well, it's something that I can either begin to worry about or have an anxiety about or a fear. But but I found myself in the hospital this last week simply saying, Lord, thank you that it's not something more serious. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for the prayers of your people. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy to me. Thank you that I'm alive. Thank you, Lord, for treatment. Thank you for my wife. There was much to give thanks to, to God for. Some of us have been through family disputes this last week, sexual temptation, struggles with the desires of the world, and there are many other things that we struggle with. Trials of various kinds, variegated trials, trials that take on a different flavor, trials that we didn't struggle with when we were young, but now we find are great trials to us now, trials that hurt deeply. And leave us with questions. Why, O Lord? Why, O Lord, must I struggle with this now? Why, O Lord, did this happen to me? At any given day, we could ask, what is this and why? But it's really not a secret that James leaves us without an answer to. And, and, of course, there, there, there are just as many varied reasons as to why God might send something uh, such as a trial into our lives. <clears throat> God's purposes are inscrutable. We may not be privy to them all the days of our lives. We may not, we may not know, come to know God's purposes for why we have failed, why we have struggled, why, why we have endeavored and, and sought to do something that we thought was good, and yet God... God did not permit us to do it. That business failed. That that relationship came to an end. That attempt to invite someone to church last week did not come to fruition. They did not come. Uh, Many of us invited people who did not come or who forgot to come. Uh, I invited two different people, uh, or we invited two different individuals. One was busy with a golf game but tried to come, tried to the last minute, Another said they were coming but didn't come. We believed all week that they were coming. Well, these are trials. These are trials of faith. Should I, should I invite anyone ever again to church? Why doesn't the Lord bless? Why, why won't the Lord send a great number of people into this congregation? Why must we, in faith, trust the Lord? Well, we know that there are many different purposes for God's sending of trials into the lives of believers or permitting of trials for a Christian. For He intends to glorify his son. He intends to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in the increase of faith in his people. 
God intends to mature us for eternal life. God intends ultimately, as verse says, to make us complete, lacking in nothing. There is a goal that God has for you, and that is to bring you at the end of your life perfect into his presence. Your present trials contribute to that growth in perfection. God intends you for you to be made more and more day by day like his son. Trials accomplish that purpose. God intends to wean us away from the world and to make us to see the very, the immeasurable blessing of knowing him. The immeasurable blessing of being in this world but not of it. The immeasurable blessing of of remembering that we were not, we are strangers and aliens, we are not intended for eternal presence in this world, but eternal presence in the very presence of our God. There are many other purposes for which God sends trials into our lives. But one stands before us this morning. Joy. Joy. The pathway of trials, we'll come back to that, tech, that, that, that purpose in a few moments, but the pathway for joy is through various trials. Yesterday I was at the funeral of our good friend um, Ann Hopkins. It was a blessing to see her family. It was a blessing to hear the faithful testament of those who believe in Jesus Christ as Ann did. There were there many who there who were there and many who spoke of Anne and spoke about Anne's faith. I'll, I'll say this: there were none there who spoke of any joy or of any thanksgiving for the life of Anne who did not do so apart from her faith in Jesus. In other words, there were some that were there who spoke of Anne and they spoke of loss. They spoke of their own sense of loss. Uh, They spoke with tears and grief. But of those who are Christians, they spoke of Anne, of her testimony, and of the fact that she is now with the Lord. They spoke of her in such a way that they spoke of her joy in Christ. They spoke of the blessing of knowing her. They spoke of her faith in Christ that ultimately has led her into the possession of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Trials teach us that we were created for something more in him. Joy comes to us in trials because we understand that there is something far more significant being done in us and for us through trials. We have joy because trials are not an end in and of themselves. We understand that even though we bear the scars from them, and even though we grieve, even though we we may struggle, and even though we may be tempted, nonetheless, we understand that God is accomplishing his will in us, and he is bringing it to full completion. So we know the pathway to maturity and James points out that the trials in our, in our lives are, are, uh, are intended to test the genuineness of our faith. We've all met people 
And James is writing against such people, but we've all met people who would tell us this morning that at one point in their life they were fervent believers, but some moment of sorrow or pain or disappointment drove them to despair and shipwrecked their faith. Many people say that God is their father, but as long as they remain untested, their faith, their belief falls short of conviction. There are many who would say, I believe, I believe. And yet their lives are absent of any visible bond service to the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they say, I believe, I believe in Jesus, but but they come short in the sense that they are doing all sorts of magnanimous things, but nothing for Jesus Christ and his glory. That their character has not changed. Their way of life has not changed. The boys and I spoke in Sunday school this morning about character and about how they'd change. And I looked at each of them and said, you're not the same as you're going to be a year from now. And I'm absolutely confident of that because God is at work in them to will and to do his good pleasure. I'm certain that he who began a good work in them will bring to completion that which he has begun. God is doing that in your life too, isn't he? And he's doing that in my life as well. The day will come in all of our lives, if it isn't already, when circumstances seem to mock what we believe. When the cruelty of life or persecution seems to deny God's fatherliness and care, when his silence calls into question his almightiness, and the sheer haphazard, meaningless, seemingly jumble of events challenges the possibilities of a creator's good and ordering hand. It's in this way that life's trials test our faith for genuineness. And this is why James insists that we know that testing is designed to result in strong consistency. The experience of having our faith tested produces steadfastness. There's nothing unusual about this statement because it's a good observation of life. Isn't it true that even worldly folk observe that trials and difficulties endured through life ultimately lead a person to maturity and a calm settledness about life and a wisdom about circumstances and an awareness of people and purposes and places and things. There's nothing unusual about that. And in fact, James is affirming that the more so for the believer that difficulties, trials and temptation make a Christian mature. They grow a Christian in the things of God. Young couples in the first excitement about their relationship, they readily believe right off the bat because of their feelings, they're in it for a lifelong relationship. But then difficulties come, don't they? And either their love is deepened and they grow, and and through those scars of relationship and of conflict and of difficulty, they come to learn and grow more and more, or that conflict leads to separation. The same will happen for everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ. We feel deeply about Christ. We come to a conviction and we believe. Well, when conflict, when difficulty, when trials beset us, when life becomes gravely difficult and trust in God becomes harder, will faith continue? Will steadfastness grow? Will your own 
possession of perfection and completedness? Will there be a contribution to that in as 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 the Lord grows and completes and enables us to become more and more like his son? Or will we decide, I've had enough, this is too difficult, off I go. In trials, faith faces tests. And testings make the relationship itself more durable and fidelity becomes more established. So by persistent steadfastness, we grow to full maturity. Verses 3 and 4 are woven together by the word steadfastness. Let endure, and knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Endurance or steadfastness. It's an interesting concept. It's like the patience of Job. You remember Job who endured through grave trials? We think about the patience of Job who endured great suffering through the loss of his children, all of his possessions, simply a passive acceptance of circumstances. We think that Job simply sat there and refused to move and to leave God. Well, that's not the case. There's much more involved in that word of steadfastness or endurance. James's word, hypomonite. Hypomone is active steadfastness, and in, in, in rather than a passive submission to circumstances, it's a word which means staying power. It's a decision of the will to sit and to remain and to say, I'm not going to leave nor abandon God, God's purposes for me. Just because I've encountered a trial, I'm not going to abandon the Lord. It's not going to make me question whether or not God is good or loving or kind to me. It's not going to make me question that I'm a child of God. It's not going to make me abandon God altogether and say, surely God hates me and doesn't love me. Rather, it's going to convince me that God is my God. And that God loves me enough to bring such trials into my life to enable me to grow in steadfastness and to be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that one day I stand before Christ, sanctified completely, holy unto God. James tells us this steadfastness and endurance, we have to have it in order to grow up into maturity as Christians. And so there are many who are telling us in the world today, in churches, that that the road to to heaven is filled with uh, the fullness of riches, happiness, a spirit of blessedness and of joy based upon our circumstances which we can ask of God that he might increase our holding and grant us all the desires and wishes of our hands and of our eyes, and God will satiate all of our longings. But that's not what James is telling us. James is telling us the road for the believer, though we are happy in Christ, though we are filled with joy in him, though we have an eventual end that will be glorious, and though the Lord is with us day by day, 
And though there are moments and seasons of great and lasting sense of happiness and of blessed joy in Christ, nonetheless, the road for the believer is long. It is hard. We ought not to be surprised. Didn't Peter say that in his first letter? Do not be surprised at the fiery trial. James is saying the road for the believer is such. The road for the believer is various trials along the way. The road is long. The road is hard. We have to endure through trial after trial. We have to go on plodding ahead. And yet in the midst of all of it, joyous in the midst of grief and anger and disappointment and difficulty, our our endurance is no more than the Lord Jesus who suffered enduring the cross, according to Hebrews 12.2. Right through to the point where the work of salvation was accomplished, we are called to that same spirit of endurance. And there's a glorious destination there for us, too, if we do endure thirdly. As a goal to this process of maturation, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God's goal for you, dear friend, is that he may make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Maybe some of us have tried really hard to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How well are you doing? In my days, even on my best days, when I get up with the intention that I'm going to act in a godly, perfect way to my family, I don't succeed. Even when I get up with the intention I'm going to deliver a perfect sermon, I never succeed. Even when I get up with the intention that I'm going to act perfectly towards my brothers and sisters in Christ, perfect patience, perfect kindness, perfect gentleness, I never succeed. Do you? That today I'm going to perfectly accomplish all God's will for me. That today perfectly I'm going to carry out his commandments. Has anyone been successful yet? This is good news. This can bring me great joy. Because in the midst of trials... I have a clear statement from God that he is at work in me. He is at work in you. And you have this statement too, that what he is doing is, he is his intention for you is that one day when you stand before him, you will not be incomplete. That you will be lacking certain components of your salvation. That somehow like on, on a, on a search for Pokemon, we have to go to various locations looking for new unlock new keys and creatures and unlock our way into the, the highest abode. Well, that's not the case at all as it concerns the Christian life. God is at work in you. His intention is that you and I would stand before him perfect and complete, possessing every part which goes to making up the complete whole, lacking in nothing. James doesn't want you and me to miss out on the magnitude of what awaits us at the end of our road. One day we'll stand before the Lord perfect, 
complete, lacking in nothing. The robes of Christ upon our bodies, the forgiveness of God, the blessings of eternal life in full possession, beholding the face of our Lord. Doesn't scripture say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord? Didn't Paul said, I'd rather be with the Lord than to be present in this world, but but I must remain until I accomplish all that the Lord has called for me to do. And you, dear Christian, God has called you to be in this world for every day that you have for the rest of your life. Each of those days has eternal significance. Each and every single one of those days is particularly apportioned to you so that God himself may lead you through various forests and difficult rivers and that as you traverse all of them in all the difficulties of this world, that he would not lead you to sarcasm or to bitterness or to anger or to distrust his love of you, but rather that he would affirm for you again and again, day by day, over and over and over again, that he himself is accomplishing in you far more than you would ever even ask of him for yourself. So my dear friend, maybe you're in the midst of grave difficulty in your home and each day just seems like one trial after another. Count it all joy. Count it all joy. Because you know that God is at work and even though you don't have all the answers and even though you you don't really have all the various pieces that would contribute to give you a cohesive whole so that you could be satisfied as to the significance of why you're going through what you're going through today. Count it all joy because God knows all of it. God has all the pieces. We should have a settled conviction about our trials that we may, even in the midst of them, be joyous. Not because we love the feeling of pain, not because difficulties make us very, very happy, but because we know that not a single one of these difficulties is outside the plan of God. Because we know that the difficulty of the day has been sent to us by God that he might prove out the genuineness of our faith. That God is at work in us doing that which is pleasing to himself, glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. God is reminding you that, yes, you are insufficient for these things. You cannot hope to do all that you intend, but rather he is going to accomplish in you all that he intends. Because he loves you. Our endurance is no more than the Lord Jesus suffered, and so we are to walk in the way in which Jesus walked. And his intention is that each day God would make us more and more like Jesus. We've listened to James diagnose our case as Christians, but he has a prescription. And we say, well, what am I supposed to do? He says, well, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Everything I suffer with today is a step to glory. Every single thing I struggle with this day leads me closer to my Savior. 
It's an invitation by God to go deeper with him. It's an invitation from Jesus Christ to to look more and more to his strength, to be animated by his power and not my own. It's an invitation by God to come and to seek intimacy with Christ in an ever-increasing way. Hebrews 12:11 says for all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant when it is in full flood but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. But why does it have to be so severe? We don't really think twice about taking medicine that really doesn't taste very good because we're certain that if we take the medicine it's going to do us good. And so we're willing to take it. I've been going to therapy for a knee tendon. Never really feels good to go up and down stairs. Never really feels good. I actually leave feeling I'm in pain and I'm all sweaty. It doesn't really feel good, but I'm convinced that if I continue to go, it's going to help me. And I don't think very light of it in that way. I'm thankful for it. And so I'm willing to go to the gym and work out. I'm willing to go to the therapist and get a little bit of therapy for the knee. But somehow we, we put up our hands and say, I, I don't really want to get better. I don't want my trial to have that kind of significance. I don't want to mature in the Christian life if it means that I'm going to have to endure pain. But don't you want to get better? Don't you want to be like your Savior? Don't you want to come to know the full enjoyment of your salvation, to reach heaven to have our perceptions and faculties sharpened and sensitized, fit for glory, there's no other way. This is God's ordained way for believers to grow. So we must set our great joy before us and endure. We have need of endurance. If we're ever to live up to what God intends for us, we need a revolution in our thinking. We need to be encouraged that when we experience and encounter trials, that holiness, sanctification, perfection, victory over sin, all spiritual graces are of far greater importance than our physical gratification, of far greater importance than our physical relief of pain. God intends through the inner transactions of our soul to affirm and strengthen our commitment to him, our self-abandonment to him, to be, yes, the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. James has told us that the road to heaven is uphill and difficult, but the promises and the benefits that we receive, though hard won and painfully made, are good. Scripture has spoken. It's our duty and our privilege to reform our thinking in the light of God's word. Our Savior went this way forward to glory. It's our privilege to go in that same way forward to his glory, to see the way that our master went and to tread that same way still. Don't we in our heart of hearts desire to be made into the image of our Savior? It is through various trials that the Lord will lead us. But his intentions, take courage, Christian, his intentions are good, that we may be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray.